So Advent, we said during the two uh, Sundays that we did have it, is the ancient wisdom of our tradition to insert into our calendar the discipline of returning to hope. The discipline of coming back to hope at the time of the year when it is the darkest. It's when life is hard. It is when the darkness is the darkest that spiritual people are called to be shiners of light, to bring life to death, to bring love to hatred, to bring healing to wounds. But that is really difficult to do if we don't come from a foundation of hope. Uh, If we can't maintain our connection to hope, if we can't authentically and experientially access hope, it is very difficult to be light in the midst of darkness. Hope, our tradition teaches us, sustains us in the dark. Hope, our tradition teaches us, capacitates us to be agents of light while we're there in the darkness. Further, our tradition teaches us, hope doesn't just happen. It's not a wish on a star kind of thing. Hope is the result of work. Hope is the result of training that we submit ourselves to. And it's work and it's training that we're not particularly inclined to undertake when we feel discouraged, when it is a time of darkness and despair. So, each year, our tradition inserts into the calendar a call, okay folks, now's the time, let's do the work. Stir ourselves to hope, the calendar says. Elevate our vision from the circumstances that overrun us with despair. Elevate our vision from the circumstances that overrun us with hatred and that overrun us with fear. And elevate our vision to something that is truer and deeper. Something that we called in the first couple of lessons the truer truths. The ancient truth of hope. Now it turns out that while it is work, the work can be enjoyable. It involves storytelling, it involves song singing, it involves firelighting, and it involves hugs and kisses, being together. It's not odious work, but it is work. Neither is this work Pollyanna uh, denial of our challenges. Our wisdom teaches us that if we're actually going to do something about the challenges that we face, hope is an essential part of the process. We, as spiritual people, we don't wait for circumstances to get better and then feel hopeful, and then feeling hopeful, go out there and begin to make the world a better place. No, that's not how it works. The way that it works is if we want to be part of the solution, it is while things are the darkest. It is when things are the most challenging and when things are the most difficult that somehow we access the necessary precondition for change. And the necessary precondition for change is hope while the darkness is dark. So each year, our tradition says, together now, let's anchor ourselves in this deep truth of hope so that we can wade in to the challenges that we face. That's what Advent is about. It's a call to do the work of rousing ourselves, waking ourselves to hope so that we can be about the work of repairing the world. 
But again, this year, between calendar and weather, we got a little shortchanged. And this year, hope is a particularly relevant topic for us as a society. So consequently, before I begin the lesson that I had planned for January, I'd like to spend a few weeks talking a little bit more about the practicalities of how we hold on to hope. Now, because we've had a holiday break, I'm going to do a little bit more review of the last two lessons that I would normally do on a Sunday, so, but if you missed those last two lessons, I would encourage you to have a listen online. If you do, you're going to run into a term uh, that kind of lays the theological foundation for what we're talking about, hope. That term is eschatological promise. Uh, you don't really need to know the term, but what it says is, be alerted to the experience of spiritual people who have gone before you. Through thousands and thousands of years of shared history, there is a thing that happens. Our ancient texts use a term to describe that thing. They call it the day of the Lord. In short, it means that the day comes when goodness wins. It always does. The day comes when hope wins. It always does. Now, in that lesson, I spoke about the advantage that you and I have living on this side of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, because now we have a deeper understanding of the term, the day of the Lord, than those who have gone before us. Before the scrolls were discovered, before we knew anything about Jewish apocalyptic literature, which the scrolls kind of explained to us, helped us understand, for about 1,500 years... We thought the day of the Lord would not happen until history was over. We thought that time would come to an end, and then we would be whisked away to an off-planet afterlife, and then, then the day of the Lord would happen. We would leave this shadow world, and we would finally experience the true fulfillment of hope. But since the scrolls were discovered, we have a different understanding. However, they weren't discovered until the late 40s, uh, and then another group in, in the early 60s. Uh, and since it takes time, it took time for us to fully understand them, and since tradition tends to change slowly, if you grew up in church, odds are you grew up thinking that our spiritual hope was pinned to the end of time, to the end of history. But now we understand that our tradition has all along been describing a hope that is much more this-worldly. The day of the Lord, the ancients point out to us, comes, and it comes again and again and again and again. It comes to this place, here, in this time frame. Now, we might be unfortunate and be born into one of those generations that we will live our whole lifetimes under the heartache of darkness. But if that's the case, the day of the Lord tells us, that won't be true for our children. Or if it is, maybe it won't be true for our grandchildren. Because no setback lasts forever. And no lie lives forever. And truth, once crushed, will rise again. The day of the Lord comes. It always comes. What the ancients were doing was pointing us to this recurring phenomenon that we have seen again and again and again if we are students of history, and they penned it with these words, sorrow lasts through the night, but joy returns in the morning. 
The day comes, it always comes, when justice triumphs over injustice, when love overcomes hatred, and when wounds are healed. Now, it is true that hope has never been fully consummated. It is true that justice, nor love, nor healing have ever been fully made complete. But the gravitational pull of the divine life keeps moving us forward. The darkness today is not quite as dark as the darkness was a hundred years ago. The darkness today is not quite as dark as the darkness was a thousand years ago. And, history tells us, when darkness overcomes one group's experience, it turns out that light will surge forward with another group in another place, sometimes in another nation. And so if we look at the human experience, the gravitational pull keeps moving us forward. The day of the Lord always comes. Never fully complete, not yet fully consummated, but hope always returns. Well, we kind of finished that part of laying out the the history behind the term, and then we we ended last time's lesson with a practical tip. If hope is a truer truth than despair, if the day of the Lord is something that promises us that the day will come, then how do we hold on to hope when it is particularly dark? How do we do it? How do we become people who do what nobody else seems to be doing, holding on to hope in the midst of the darkness? And we started with a practical tip last time that comes from our contemplative tradition, and it has to do with how we manage the hope-killing emotions that we all face. How do we manage those despair-inducing emotional experience, and our tradition teaches us, that we practice meditation, we practice mindfulness, we practice becoming the observer self. In other words, we are often embroiled in the thought and the feeling and the narrative that we tell ourselves, but through the practice of meditation, we stand outside of that and we observe the experience. And in the process of observing that experience, we begin to disidentify with it. And then it becomes what it is. It is a story we tell ourselves. It is an emotion that we feel. It is not the sum total of our identity as human beings. We practice becoming the observer self. We particularly do that when negative emotions arise. That's when we begin to watch them, we saw. We practice meditation, or we call it centering prayer. Uh, We train ourselves to be the observer self, to stand apart from the tossing wind and waves that come from these emotions that tend to kill off hope. Now again, if you missed uh, any of those lessons, have a listen online. But for a couple of weeks, I would like to finish out what we would have done in Advent, talking about hope uh, by doing this, looking at practical tools for doing what the ancients taught us to do, practical tools for helping us maintain hope in the midst of darkness, practical tools to help us fulfill the mandate of our tradition, which is to bring our best selves to the work of repairing our little part of the world. Each of us gets a part of the world to influence. Each one of us gets a part of the world we get to shape and we get to heal and we get to redeem. 
How do we bring our best selves to that endeavor? And when we ask that question, hope is the bedrock of how we do it. So I want to talk about some practical tools for maintaining hope in the darkness. We talked about being the observer self, meditation. Today I want to talk about storytelling. Now we've discussed together many times how powerful stories are in our lives. You just heard Chris talk about why we dig into the stories that we tell ourselves. Our stories shape our instincts, and our instincts shape the lives that we end up living. The stories that we tell ourselves, usually unconsciously, don't get get examined, they don't get named, they don't get seen, they rarely emerge from the tacit to the explicit. The stories that we tell ourselves can shape our experiences of despair, and the stories that we tell ourselves can also shape our experiences of hope. But again, these stories, they always just run under the radar. They're outside, they're underneath the level of conscious awareness. So that's why we do that practice that Chris was telling us about. We call it the practice of self-awareness and self-disclosure. For shorthand, we call it doing a worksheet, working through the 20 questions, asking ourselves what is going on beneath the surface of this emotion. When we're doing that, what we're doing is we are training ourselves to see what we don't normally see. We don't normally see the stories that we tell ourselves. They're just us. They're just the air we are breathing at any given moment. And we begin to practice intentionally seeing how they are affecting us, how they are shaping our worlds. And we are practicing bringing into our conscious minds what we would tend to miss absent the practice. Now, after we have done that, we ask ourselves about those stories that we have now seen. How, How true is that story? How helpful is that story? How necessary is that story? Even though the story feels so true, hope-killing stories are never the one and true truth that we assume they are. They are always only partly true. Hope-killing stories always are only tapping into part of the story. Now, that is not what it feels like to be under the influence of one of these stories. That is not what it feels like to be in the throes of one of these stories. But these stories are always only partly true. But running in the background, sight unseen, they gain some kind of a revered status. They become the way things really are. Those stories that we tell ourselves become the one and true truth about the universe. We never suspect them. We are never suspicious of them. We never realize that they are only partly true. He's not dead. He's only partly dead. (laughs) So first, we have to see our stories as stories. But once we do that, there's still hard work to do. Now we have to break up the thought habits that made that story such a commonplace story to begin with. 
Because that is what we do. Remember what we've said so many times, it is so much easier to think a thought the second time than it is to think it the first time because we bushwhack our way through these neural forests in our head, but then we've quite created a path, and it's easier still to think that thought the third time, and it's easier still to think it the fourth time, and pretty soon we think these thoughts thinking that they are the one and true truth, not realizing what they really are, are neural thought habits. So not only do we have to see the story as a story, now we have to begin to break up the habitual way in which we tell ourselves these stories. We have to break up the foundation that has granted them their status as unquestioned truth. So we do worksheets. And every year about this time of year I stand up and say, do two a month. Two worksheets a month. That would be a good thing for you to do this year. Do two worksheets a month. And did I mention the community care team has been practicing? They will do it with you. So, we monitor, we guard, and we assess the stories that we tell ourselves. That's an essential part of spiritual training. That's an essential part of stirring ourselves to hope. Our spiritual training insists that we learn to act as gatekeepers of the stories that we allow to enter into our minds. So, this is something that happens to me a lot. Uh, folks will make an appointment to meet with the reverend guy, and they would like to talk over a spiritual challenge or a life challenge or a relational challenge, and the conversation will often follow this pattern. They will tell their story, and I'll ask a whole bunch of practical questions to kind of get to the essence of the story, and after they've told the story, I will tell them back the story that I just heard them tell me. That's an essential part of listening well. We all do it when we do the practice of self-awareness and self-disclosure together. We all do it when we do the practice of conflict resolution together. So after I have told them back their story and they come to the place where they can say, yeah, that really is what I'm here to talk about, then I will do what we do when we are doing those worksheets and we get to the last three questions. I will ask those three questions. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it necessary? Is that a true story? It is 100% true? Is it always true in every circumstance? Are there places in which that story isn't true? Are there ways in which the truth of that story is somehow mitigated by this factor or that factor? Is it a helpful story? Is that story making life better? What payoff do you get from telling yourself that story? And what is the cost that's being exacted of you in order to get that payoff? There's a cost-benefit analysis. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to be telling that story? Is it helpful? And is it necessary? Because usually once we discover that this is only partially true, we can say, you know what? I don't have to be telling myself this story. I have options. There are other ways that I could tell this story. There are mitigating factors to bring to this story. There are insights that I could bring to this story. And if I'm honest with myself, there's a good probability that I'm not telling myself this story because it is the intrinsic truth about the world. There's a good chance I'm telling this story this way because that's what my brain habits do. I've been telling myself this kind of story for a long, long time. So let me begin to bring some suspicion to bear on this story. And that's when we begin to go to work together. And we will say, let's look at this story and let's bring some skepticism to it. Now again... We do this practice because our stories usually run unseen in the background. They're powerfully deterministic of how we experience life, but they're unseen. Before we can be the gatekeeper of the stories that we tell ourselves, 
we have to learn how to see them. We have to learn how to see the stories that we tell ourselves. And then we have to learn the skill set of bringing suspicion to bear upon those stories. We have to learn the skills of interpreting those stories with a critical eye. That's why we do the self-awareness and self-disclosure worksheets together. That's why we work through those 20 questions and then do it with someone else because it turns out doing it alone, just sitting at your, with a piece of paper or sitting at the computer working through those questions yourself is a fundamentally different exercise than doing it with someone else. When we've got two brains in the mix, it goes very differently. That's why the ancient practice of confession was done with someone else. By the way, this is parenthetical remarks, not even in the notes. What we do with self-awareness really is just a reworking of the ancient practice of confession. Somehow we lost our way along the way and we thought confession was about getting God to forgive us. But we say all the time, forgiveness is to God as shine is to sun. You can no more not get forgiveness from God than you can not get shine from the sun. It's just the way things are. We don't confess in order to get forgiven. We confess to become self-aware so that we know what was the motivating drive behind the thing that made me do that thing. Because if I did that thing, there's odds are I'm going to do it again tomorrow. And so I got to understand what was driving it. That's why we do confession. So, we learn to be, to maintain hope in the darkness by learning to be gatekeepers of the stories that we tell ourselves. We learn to be gatekeepers of the stories that shape our lives, the stories that make us able to or unable to bring healing to our worlds and to our families, to our homes, to our jobs, to our social networks. So story is a very significant part of how we maintain hope. So I want to illustrate a little bit of what this means <clears throat> by telling you a story. Um, before the holidays, I was meeting with uh, one of the guys who was on the post-election team. And he had just finished up his uh, training, the, the group had just finished up their training in how to be talking circle keepers. And I asked, him about his experience of the year, I said, tell me the whole thing. Tell me the good and the bad and the ugly. And so we spoke honestly about some of the challenges that we as a community faced last year after the election. We spoke honestly about some of the challenges uh, that the group faced trying to figure out how to talk together about these very volatile issues. And he talked about the challenge of being one political leaning and working through relationship and being in community and having tough conversations with people who were just as passionate, having another political leaning, the good and the bad and the ugly. And sure enough, there was some bad and there was some ugly. This has been kind of an ugly time in our national life. I heard uh, David Brooks talking about this national division that we experience, and he said this in 1960, one party 10% and the other part, party a few more than 10% uh, felt strongly that their child should marry within their party, between 10 and 13%. By 2016, that number had risen to between 60 and 63% who thought that uh, your, our children should marry within our political party, which means that as a nation, our political parties have come to define us more deeply than our religion. Our tendency to otherize someone and who we otherize runs along lines of politics even more than it runs along lines of religion, and I gotta tell you, that's a trick. <laughs> so 
That's the environment that we've all been living in this last couple of years. So that means there's plenty of bad to go around. There's plenty of ugly to go around. So it's easy to tell ourselves bad stories. It's easy to tell ourselves ugly stories. But just because we tell ourselves these stories, and just because we all live now in reinforcing echo chambers where we all get our news according to our preference, and consequently we all have the reinforcement of the stories that we tell ourselves as the one and true truth about reality, that doesn't mean that that's any truer today than it was in 1960. It just means that we believe it's more true than we did in 1960. So again, there's plenty of bad and there's plenty of ugly around to capture our attention. There's plenty of bad and there's plenty of ugly that we can organize our stories around. But, as we were chatting about the year that we've just gone through, we didn't ignore the bad and we didn't ignore the ugly, but we did give space to talk about the good as well. Because it turns out that the bad and the ugly just don't define the whole story. The bad and the ugly are not big enough to contain the whole story. We talked about where our community was right after the election. And he said, you know, it was really hard at that time to hope for anything. It was hard to hope for anything positive because anything positive seemed impossible. It was hard to hope for anything redemptive because anything redemptive was just so far off the radar, couldn't see it. But then we began to rehearse what the post-election group had done together and the pitfalls that they fell into, but their deep commitment to discern together a Christian response to this national moment. And he told me about their talking circle training that they'd gone through, and yep, there was some bad, and yep, there was some ugly. We talked about several people in the community, not even part of the circle training, who had a negative reaction to some of my lessons because uh, one group or another would feel shortchanged or feel disregarded by something that I said. I told him about one person who had told me, you know, Doug, when you use this term or when you use that term, I hear you saying this negative thing or I hear you saying that negative thing and that feels disrespectful and I feel disregarded and I hear heard attack. But this person said even though it was a strong reaction that I had, I know you. And I've walked through these conversations with you, and I recall how you bring your values and priorities. And out of that relationship, this person said, it's possible now for me to challenge those visceral responses. It's possible for me to challenge those stories that I tell myself. And so we were talking about how the year had gone, and he kept going, And then he said something that really encouraged me. He said, it felt so profoundly hopeless at the beginning of the year. There was so much loss and so much grief. Lost relationships, lost safety, lost community, lost equilibrium. And each one of those losses brought with it an attending sense of grief. But he said, now I can look back and see... That loss and the grief that attended it, that wasn't the whole story. What I couldn't see then that I can see now is that loss and grief don't factor in hope. Loss and grief, he said, now I realize are not the whole story. And he said, I suspect they never are. Any story that is not informed by hope 
he said, is not the whole story. And he said, look at us. We got somewhere I could never have imagined that we could get. Look at what we're able to do now that we couldn't do then. And he said, now we're poised to teach the other folks in our community to do the same thing. We can have these conversations and we can do it without dismissing one another. And we can talk about these hard things and we can do it honestly. And sure, we still irk one another and we still think that one another is off base. But we do it in the context of believing the best about one another. We know that each one of us is a person of good intent. We know that each one of us is doing what we believe is right and good. And he said, I haven't changed my political inclinations or my political party, but I have learned to listen to those that I dismissed before. And he said, now I know their story. And I can see they're not crazy. They're not stupid. They're not heartless. All those things that I thought they just were. He said, and I think they've come to that same perspective of me. He said, that was important. And that gives me hope. But he said, there's something even bigger that happened. We did something that I did not think we could be, that could be done. We learned to have these conversations without dismissing one another. We learned to be our honest selves and not let our negative views of the other make that conversation impossible. And he said the key was, when I look back at the beginning of the year, I could not imagine that we could get here from there. And he said that gives me hope to wonder where else we could go that we can't seem to get to from here. That makes me begin to hope for what other people can do because now we've seen how it can be done. And that makes me hope about how our community could change and how our world could change and our homes and our jobs and our neighborhoods because what hope does is it gives us a vision of what we can't see from here. Hope points us to possibilities that didn't exist when we didn't have hope. Hope gives us fortitude and strength and courage to go towards something that we will not have the courage and fortitude and strength to go toward without it. We chase possibilities that cannot be seen when we have tapped into the truer truth of hope. I was really encouraged by the conversation. Hope. Challenging our habitual stories evokes hope. Conversely, having hope challenges our habitual stories and changing our stories feeds back and begins to feed us hope. What we can't see from here, the wisdom of the ancients points out to us and says, hope, the day of the Lord will come. You can get there from here. And that's what the spiritual tradition calls us to help one another do during the season of Advent. And I would suggest at this moment in our national life, maintain hope in the darkness. Maintain hope in the darkness by practicing meditation, the contemplative art of being the observer self. Maintain hope by acting as gatekeepers of the stories that we tell ourselves stories we must first see, and then stories to which we must bring a healthy dose of skepticism. Now again, 
regarding the stories that we tell ourselves, I do encourage you to go to our website. It'll take you about an hour to work your way through that page on self-awareness and self-disclosure. But once you do that, you will know exactly what we're talking about when we say do the practice of self-awareness and self-disclosure. You'll know exactly what we're talking about when we talk about doing a worksheet. And then I would encourage you to make an appointment. It's on our website under the resources tab. So Spirit of God, may we be effective guardians of the stories that we tell ourselves. And may we develop a strength for, a capacity for, a resilience with hope in the middle of dark times. And by tapping into that hope, may we be people, spiritual people, who bring our best selves to this moment, our best version to the world's need in this time of darkness, that may, we may be agents of healing and we may be agents of restoration and wholeness and love and light. May that be so in us and may that capacity flow through us. Amen.